This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Spider bait there, Stevie. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Dr. Noel Reisman joins us to talk about the emergence of the transgender community in Australia. And later, Paige Burton from Equality Australia joins us to talk about census exclusion and the Count Us in 2021 campaign. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And we are joined in the studio by Dr. Noel Reisman from the Australian Catholic University. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, just down the road. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, really exciting. You're researching a book about the emergence of transgender identity in Australia. Huge topic. Oh, very big topic. Look, I think that's oversimplifying it. So first I'd say it's not just a book. So it's... um an Australian Research Council-funded project that is essentially looking at the history of trans people in Australia since the early 20th century. Um, But then you get into all these complicated, messy things about how can you call someone trans before the word trans existed? Because the word didn't really exist until the 1960s and didn't come more popular use until the 1990s. But it is looking at sort of that history of what we might say is gender non-normativity, gender crossing. And then as you get more recent, we can start applying the label trans much more definitively. So you're in an interesting situation because you're kind of at the moment really focusing on the emergence over the last 40 years, yeah? Yeah, look, I am doing a little all over the shop and I have done some of the earlier histories, but at the moment I'm very much focusing on since the 70s, 80s and 90s because a lot of the research is grounded in oral histories and I do state from the outset my position, I'm a cisgender male, I'm not transgender. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly an ally and I'm an advocate and very much working with people in the trans community and have already interviewed, I've lost count, something like... Like 50 people, um, many of whom are current activists or former activists or advocates and some who, I use the word loosely, but ordinary people, we might say, to, to get all sorts of perspectives. So I am trying to compile these and in a few years' time when the project's done, there will be a book that comes out of it, but there'll be other stuff along the way that working on um, so it's not just sort of disappear for several years and then come back with something. So what's the earliest point of trans emergence in Australia that you have identified so far? Uh, Well, I can't answer that question because I don't know what you mean by emergence, per se. I mean, because, you know, we know that indigenous communities um, have had um, non-just male or female gender since before colonial times. I can't pinpoint a specific example, per se, but we know, for instance, from some of the communities in the Northern Territory, they have specific words to describe a third gender. And those languages are still spoken today. So it goes back since time immemorial, we could say. In terms of... um, post-settlement, colonized, invasion Australia. There are examples from uh, as early as the 1850s, 1860s from newspapers of people who were caught living in the opposite gender, let's say. Again, you can't necessarily put a label of trans on them, but we can certainly look at those examples and say, oh, okay, so why was this person assuming the identity of a different gender to what they were assigned at birth? What, what might be the reasons behind it? Why, what do we know about their lives and about their experiences? It's those examples, but I'm starting from the early 20th century that the project is is looking at. You mentioned the 60s and 70s before. What are you <laughs> discovering about, about that period? Well, it's really the 70s where you begin to see the emergence of what we might call more organized trans people or even... 
God, there's so much to go to here. First of all, I'd say it's very fragmented across the states. So every state very much has its own different trans history. And you would not be surprised to know that some of the more active and the more visible places were first Sydney and then probably Melbourne. But that said, having I was just in WA last week um, interviewing some trans people out there. And found out that their first organized trans group was running from as early as 1974-75. So it has been – there has been some visibility and organization going back as early as the 70s. It was, from what we can tell, about 1969 when the first gender affirmation surgery was performed in Australia. Can't completely confirm that, but most of the records suggest 1969. Sydney surgeries, the way it was described to me, were – were not very good in the 70s. They were often quite botched, to, to put it bluntly. Melbourne, it became much more organized, and there were surgeons performing it from 69, and you had what's now the Monash Gender Clinic. Its precursors was first set up in 1975. So from that sort of medicalization of trans, which wasn't just in Australia, it was a global phenomenon, the sort of medicalization which activists very much have been fighting to move away from, but you very much see that in place in the 70s. And then the other stream that's going on in the 70s is is dressers. So people who would have, at the time, it's an offensive word now, so I'm very much saying this in quotation marks, but that term transvestite would have, those groups were sort of emerging in the 1970s. You first had Seahorse in Sydney, and then the offshoot of that was Seahorse in Melbourne was set up in 1975. Chameleon Society, which was the offshoot in WA was set up in 74, 75. So you do see those sorts of groups, which are still around today, of people who now would come under the trans umbrella. But at the time, they didn't identify as transgender. They identified usually as heterosexual males who like to dress in women's clothing. Um, so there's so these sort of different patches, I suppose you'd say, of trans groups are sort of starting to very quietly organize in the 70s. They're not necessarily activists in the sense that they're not necessarily out there advocating for law reform they're not necessarily out there advocating for societal change they're more often support groups supporting each other so that people can find ways to express themselves in a safe environment and of course you know the early 70s mid 70s that was very much a time of uh women's liberation and Mm. and the emergence of feminism uh, and gay liberation as well. And what were the impacts of, of those movements on, on trans identity in those trans communities? Yeah, were they helpful? Uh, Perhaps not always. From what I can see, there's not really much interaction at all. Um, I think women's liberation over time, you'd have the rise of what we now call TERFs. But in the 70s, from what I've seen so far, and if there are people who are around then who want to correct me, please ring me up and, or email me and correct me. But I don't see much interaction at all or much effect at all. There's – I mean even – we now talk LGBT, but the T didn't – there was some interaction in that, again, when when we when the understandings of gender were different back then and understandings of gender identity were different, that – some of the trans people who are a bit older back then might have identified with drag. So I've interviewed some trans people who were doing drag in the 1950s and the 1960s and over time come to identify as trans and might go through medical surgery. Some don't, you know, everyone who's trans transitions in their own way. So there is that sort of connection with the gay community through drag. But that aside, there was often quite a separation. Gay men especially didn't want to be identified as that. They saw that as the freak show, so that's not them. But drag was sort of the one thing that sometimes united them. 
you mentioned gender reassignment surgery before or organ surgery, um, and you said that it was sometimes botched. Have you spoken to people who, who went through that in I, the late 60s, early 70s? I've spoke to, it was just last week in Perth, a person who, she went through gender affirmation surgery um, in the 1970s, but went through it in London because she knew people who had suffered through botched surgeries in Sydney. It was especially Sydney where these stories of the botched surgeries came out. And she told me in this oral history interview that actually it reached a point where they stopped doing surgeries in Sydney because they realized, she said that it was almost like treating people like guinea pigs in Sydney. They weren't trained properly to do it, but were doing it anyway. And they kind of stopped in Sydney. And that's when Melbourne very much became the hub hub for it. In Melbourne, they were better trained. Um, but this person I interviewed, she went over to London because she didn't want to deal with that. There were other trans people I've interviewed who they either... No, there's at least another one I know who she did her surgery in London in the early 70s. Um, Morocco was a very popular destination back then, as was Egypt. So the stereotype these days about Thailand as the popular destination for where you could get it cheaper and quicker back then was Morocco and Egypt, which is really wow. fascinating. I know. You wouldn't think that now. Why? How? Considering perhaps, you know, their social attitudes towards um, the trans community yeah. uh, or the stereotype of that. But obviously, why was this industry burgeoning there? That why I should... cannot answer. I think other historians would know more about that than me. But that said, we do know that Iran today, all sorts of problematic issues with LGBT. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I'm not defending Iran's record. But in Iran, they allow people who've had gender affirmation surgery. That's the only form of trans they'll recognize. And as we've already said, trans people don't all want surgery. But that said, in Iran, it's sort of like you either have surgery or you don't. <laughs> or if you don't, you're persecuted. If you have surgery, yep, fine. So yeah, it's interesting, but I, I don't know enough about that Morocco-Egypt history. Tell us about the community in the 1980s. Of course, uh, HIV AIDS came along. Mm. The gay community was was mobilising around that. Uh, tell us what was happening for the trans community in that era, especially around HIV AIDS. Are people talking to you much about that? It's, it's still very hard to use that word community sometimes in that context right. because you've got multiple communities in every city. So Sydney's was the most organized because in Sydney you had activist Roberta Perkins, who was very much a champion and sadly passed away a year ago. Um, Roberta very much organized the, an organization called the Australian Transsexual Association. She managed to secure funding and set up what was then called Tiresias House, which is now the Gender Center in Sydney. And in the 80s, the Gender Center, I'll call it the Gender Center, but it was Tiresias House then, was very much um, a refuge for, for trans people, whether they were homeless trans people. A lot of them sex workers, not all of them, but a lot of them sex workers, people kicked out of home. Um, so you had that sort of support network in Sydney going on in the 1980s. In terms of HIV AIDS, having spoken to some people who worked at Tiresias House, absolutely people who worked at Tiresias House were involved in you know condom distribution, syringe exchange, a lot of those programs working with the trans sex workers on the streets. Um, and so that's going on in Sydney. In Melbourne, again, it's harder to, to get a sense of there being a community per se. I have interviewed one person who was a sex worker in Melbourne in the early 90s, and she said that there was apparently um, a, a Kiwi, a trans Kiwi woman who was sort of like the, you better be in with her if you wanted protection in the sex work community. But HIV AIDS, it didn't come up in many of the discussions with the people I spoke to in Melbourne. It did, again, I'm sure it was an issue. I'm not going to, you know, downplay that. The sex work community was an at-risk community, but they were very well organized, um, especially in Sydney through the, the sex work unions. 
Um, but the first actual inquiry to look at HIV AIDS in the trans community was by Roberta Perkins, again, in 1994. It had federal funding, but what's actually interesting is the report title, I forget the name of the title, but it's something like HIV AIDS in the transsexual community or, or something along those lines. It's actually a report that's not so much about HIV AIDS and just about the experiences of trans people in Australia. And Roberta very cleverly used the funding she got for HIV AIDS to do this report. And it's really, in many ways, the first report on trans people in Australia, published in 1994 with federal, with federal funding. Um, and that report was cited by activists throughout the 1990s, the statistics in that report. It very much talked about the violence that people faced, the discrimination they faced in employment, welfare issues, a, a lot having to turn to drugs or sex work. Um, and a lot of the statistics in that report get picked up by activists later in the 90s until around 2000. And then it's sort of in the 2000s that we begin to see more research. Um, but I'm trying to remember the report. Like the report from my memory, it barely talks about HIV AIDS. It doesn't not talk about it, but it really focuses its attention elsewhere. What are some of those pivotal moments in transgender law reform in Australia that you have come across? Oh, pick a state, any state. We're in Victoria. Let's talk Victoria. Um, well, no, I'll start with a national example. So in Victoria, the first activist group that I've, I've come across records for was a group founded in 1979 called the Victorian Transsexual Coalition. And this group was very small, and it was um, trans women who had had gender affirmation surgery, so they were very much focusing just on people who had had surgery. Um, and they were advocating for birth certificate reform as early as the very early 1980s. They were advocating for anti-discrimination law in Victoria. They even were had meetings with the then, what was it called, the Equal Opportunity Commission? Well, no, but it wasn't the commission. It was Equal Opportunity like Advisory Group or... I'd have to look at my notes. It wasn't called that, but it was the precursor to that. Um, and they were advocating when there was a wave of reforms to the Equal Opportunity Act for sexually reassigned to be a category that would be recognized. And this Equal Opportunity, let's call it the Commission for Argument's sake, endorsed that, but the government didn't go ahead with it. So they were advocating for that. One interesting point where they did secure a change was at the federal level. So in 1983, there was a series of royal commissions um, that were looking into like drug smuggling and, and sort of um, international crime. And one of the big recommendations that came out of that was that there needed to be stricter guidelines on issuing of passports, including the need to see a birth certificate. And so these, this trans activist organization, the Victorian Transsexual Coalition, wrote to the passport office and said, well, what does this mean for you know trans people who've had surgery because we can't change our birth certificates? And they very politely essentially said, too bad. So then they, they wrote to Gareth Evans, um, who I believe was foreign minister at the time. There was a series of meetings. It did take a while. But in November of 1984, Gareth Evans um, came out with a new rule that said, if you were a transgender person, you'd had gender affirmation surgery, and you had a letter from surgeon confirming this, you could get your passport in your firm gender and your firm name. That's a, that was a really big deal for 1984, and that was, with some tweaking over the years, more or less the policy in place until 2011 when they brought in self-identifying and the non-binary option. Um, in terms of Victoria, so there are occasional pushes for anti-discrimination law reform when there was a review by the Victorian Law Commission in 1990 into the Equal Opportunity Act. It did recommend adding, again, I think they used the word sexually reassigned, but they did essentially a trans category to it. Then the Victorian government um, commissioned a review into it in 1994, 93, 94. 
Um, and that review, a very small number of trans people, four people wrote in submission saying, like, you know, we need anti-discrimination protections as well. In 95, when the Kennett government did amend the Equal Opportunity Act, they added protections for sexual orientation. That's when they first added it, although they didn't call it sexual orientation. They called it lawful sexual activity, which caused a whole other kettle of fish there. But they added several categories of protection. They didn't add transgender. From that, there's there's more pushes through the 90s, and you begin to see the emergence of organized transgender activism in Victoria, especially around 1998, when the Victorian transgender law, Victorian transgender law reform group, I'm probably no, yeah, God, all the names are doing my head now. I've looked at so many, but we'll call it that now. Um, but but the key point for that group is that group was originally set up actually because when they were setting up, sorry, lobby Victorian transgender rights lobby because when they were setting up the Victorian gay and lesbian rights lobby, there were trans people who wanted to be included in that. But the lobby decided, no, we will look at gay and lesbian. You people, you know, yeah, we support you to an extent, but you need to do your own thing. And so the trans Julie Peters, this trans activist, said, fine, I'll set up our own group. And they did set that up. And then that group went through a few morphs. It disbanded for particular reasons, but then it rebanded in 1999 as what is now Transgender Victoria. And they, in 2000, were very much... Um, in 99, in the build-up to the election, which Steve Brax unexpectedly won, they managed to get a uh, secure pledge from the Labour Party that if elected, they would bring in anti-discrimination for trans people. And so in 2000, the then-Attorney General Rob Hulls had this on the agenda. They were going to make two amendments to the Equal Opportunity Act. One was to include trans people in it, finally, under the category of gender identity. And the other one actually was to change unlawful oh, – sorry, to change lawful sexual conduct to – sexual orientation um and look there's a whole nother story there i could go on and on but but to get to cut it short that passed in september 2000 after a lot of activism and lobbying from transgender victoria amongst others so that's a very important moment of law reform in victoria new south wales had anti-discrimination protections brought in in 96 queensland 2002 what was the nightmare state in particular for the trans community would you say <sighs> was it wa we've just come back from well wa is an interesting one wa is a really really funny one so the wa story is that in 1997 under a liberal government and i have to say wa is the only state where any of the trans reforms happened under a liberal government with the sort of exception of Tasmania, which just passed birth certificate reform, but that was because the speaker defected. So even though it's a liberal <laughs> government, it's a liberal government, the Labour are the ones who did it, Labour and the Greens. But WA, so they proposed what was called the Gender Reassignment Act in 1997. And this was modeled off what South Australia had. And what it set up was a process through which people who'd had surgery or medical interventions could get a recognition certificate and then their birth certificate recognized in their affirmed gender. It did pass the WA legislature, but there was this weird quirk of that that the type of bill it was wasn't allowed to start in the upper house, so it was sort of thrown out. But it was passed then for real in 2000. So the, And one of the provisions in the Gender Reassignment Act, which was passed in WA, did amend their anti-discrimination laws also to protect gender history. Now, the interesting quirk in WA is gender history requires you to have had surgery, which means that actually, and that's still on the law in the books today in WA, in WA, if you haven't had surgery, you actually aren't protected by anti-discrimination law. But I would be very curious because you don't hear much noise about that. I do know that, that there are some trans activists who absolutely want that changed. 
I think that gender history might be interpreted more loosely than what it was originally envisioned as. Um, there was a push to get that changed in 2001, 2002, when labor came back to power and they were reviewing their anti-discrimination legislation to include gay and lesbian, which weren't in it yet. And it was one of many examples you find where there was originally gay, lesbian, and trans, and trans got dropped. And the trans people were pushed to the margins, and they were very unhappy about that. They were thrown under the bus so that they could get gay and lesbian included in anti-discrimination in WA. Similar thing happened in Queensland in 1991 when gay and lesbian were put into anti-discrimination. Trans were dropped then as well, pushed under the bus. But that was passed in Queensland in 2002. So to go back to your original question, now that I've rambled there, which state is the – like? They've all at various times been more forward and all at various times been more backward. I suppose the only thing I can say is the ACT and New South Wales in the law – well, no, not even any more New South Wales. The ACT generally has been ahead of the game. They were the first to have anti-discrimination. They were the first with birth certificate reform that you don't need to have surgery. Um, New South Wales were, were early on anti-discrimination, but they still haven't passed birth certificate reform. So – it's all over the shop. But they have all, with that exception of WA, they've always been Labour governments, which is really important and interesting. You must be hearing some incredible anecdotes as you travel around the country towards <gasps> the trans community. Um, yes. <laughs> what are some of the anecdotes that jump out the most? Oh, God, I don't know where to start. Look. Oh, look. What I, jumps into your head straight away? Is well, it one story the, in particular? I think it's probably just the ones I just got in WA, I suppose, are the ones that stand out um, just because I was just there and interviewed six people. Um, one really interesting one is a, a non-binary person I interviewed in WA who they they were identifying as non-binary since sort of the 90s, and they started using the, the MX mix um, in 2002, and they've been... They were using it before it became a thing, let's say. As far as I know, they might be one of the first people in the world to have used it. And they've been writing to the dictionary because they don't like the dictionary's definition of MX and they think they've got it wrong. But that's one thing that that came out of someone in WA. Um, really, other, I mean... One Stories of, of resilience? Oh, look, everyone I've interviewed has been incredibly resilient. I have to say that. I mean... A common thread, and we know this when we see the statistics, is, I mean, the mental health problem, uh, barriers, the, the a lot of people who at one time did have thoughts of suicide, several really did attempt suicide. Um, and what I always say often, especially when we see the statistics of, of 40 plus percent trans people consider suicide at some stage, I always say, those who transition are the survivors. They're the survivors. And therefore, they are the resilient ones, which is really sad to think about the ones who aren't resilient who we don't know what's happened to them or sometimes we do know um so absolutely resilience i mean um that's right one one that sticks in my mind a person i interviewed in wa she's both transgender and intersex and um so she was born with an intersex variation she didn't know that because her parents hid it from her for decades she is a victim of forced surgery as an infant which again she didn't learn till years later and she's very against the forced um surgery medically unnecessary surgeries just as the intersex community very much is um but later in life like she always so she was assigned male at birth but you know didn't quite feel male and over time eventually did come to transition and one thing she did say is her current partner like she would not be alive or not for her current partner who has supported her 100 percent through her transition um so i mean that story and 
she's an example also she lives in a country town in wa she's been completely accepted by the community has had no problems so i mean there are very positive stories like that too but it doesn't she didn't struggle along the way um both as an intersex person and as a transgender person and what about some of the stories around peer support and the creativity there from the community um yeah well look peer support has been incredibly important whether through seahorse or support groups or the arts i mean uh, again one of these people i interviewed in wa is a musician and they even played for me a few compositions they've made that are sort of compositions that they feel sort of speaks to to a trans identity a sort of transing of music if you will um so uh, look it's been incredibly important for people as early as the 1980s a lot of so seahorse traditionally has been for people who dress um but haven't necessarily had surgery but one thing that has come out is a lot of trans people before they had surgery might have been members of seahorse in victoria new south wales chameleons and wa wherever state they're in and often they met other people there and those are still their friends today. Like, and that was a very important affirming experience for them. They learned stuff about, gee, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. There's others like me. They learned about opportunities. They learned about options. And some people don't go on and have surgery again, totally fine. Others did. And a lot of the people, once they had surgery sort of moved away from seahorse, but they still maintain those connections with the people they met there. So of course, peer support is so vital. Um, has been for decades in various forms can't wait for the book to come out i don't know when i'm gonna write it i've got no i'm still researching i'm still interviewing people still the personal archives people have kept have been absolutely remarkable and they've been so generous to share them um some people have kept letters and organizational stuff going back to the 1970s um like one julie peters again this fabulous um former activist, um, you know, sort of really respected elder in Victoria's trans community. Julia saved bloody everything. She even has the original Seahorse membership list from 1975 in Victoria. Now, well, look, we would never publish that because that would be a breach of these people's privacy. But just the fact that she still has that is just so remarkable. So there's so much stuff to get through. So many more people to interview. And if anyone wants to be interviewed, please contact me. Um, my email is noah.reisman at acu.edu.au. Um, because just every person I meet has this remarkable story and I am learning so much and I hope more people can learn through conversations and eventually when there's a book and other stuff through reading as well. It's very exciting, Noah. Thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Here's TM Duke. You're on In Your Face.
Tim Duke there with skin you're on in your face on 3CR with James. Well, Equality Australia is part of a chorus of LGBTIQ organisations who are urging the Australian Bureau of Statistics to include questions about sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics in the 2021 census. On the line, we have Equality Australia's Community Engagement Officer, Paige Burton. Paige, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Paige, it seems really hard to believe the ABS is not being LGBTIQ inclusive, considering the census is used to determine, you know, the need for services and infrastructure. How do we get to this point? Look, it's a good question, and we're actually wondering ourselves where the decision to, to exclude and not include questions comes um, has come from, um, and we don't know whether that's thing with the ABS or with the government at the moment, but it's really upsetting um, and pretty disappointing because our national census has to reflect all of our country, and when it doesn't, we all miss out. So what is the ABS saying to justify this decision? The ABS has, uh, again, we haven't totally confirmed, they have a statement um, saying that they have presented recommendations. We don't know what those recommendations are or to whom, but but at the moment the decision to, uh, as far as we're aware, has been made to not include uh, LGBTI-specific questions in the test run of the census that will be happening in Wagga Wagga uh, later this month. So it sounds like this is basically a direction from the Morrison government. Would you agree with that? I absolutely cannot confirm that. We're we're trying to understand ourselves a little bit better to work out, you know, where this decision lies and and who we need to talk to to make sure that LGBTI people are included um, and counted properly in the census. So this trial run of the census that's happening in Wagga Wagga, what will it actually ask about the LGBTIQ community? If anything... as far as we're aware, nothing different. Um, so at the moment, um, we have questions about same-sex couples, um, and but, but there's no specific question about, say, sexual orientation. So the only data we have are about people who are in same-sex relationships that are sort of a bit, well, obviously don't capture the diversity of our population and our community, which is disappointing. There was in the last census an option to have a non-binary or a third gender option. I'm not certain how this is going to look in if it's going to look the same in this test under in the 2016 census people had to go specifically and request a different form uh, if they wanted to, to put down a different gender um, so we're not sure what that's going to look like either there's a lot of questions that we're all trying to work out who, where they are and, and who they sit with ultimately before the 2021 census and I guess, you know, getting answers to those questions would be a lot easier if there was a minister for the LGBTIQ community in this Morrison government, but of course there isn't. There is not, no. Um, I mean, I think a lot of things would be um, be, be different, um, but, we'll, you know, we work with the government that we have um, and we'll keep trying to get uh, the best representation that we can for LGBTI Australians. Do you think there's a link between the frequent attacks by the Prime Minister on the trans community and the lack of inclusion of questions in the census around gender identity and the resistance to it that seems to be happening? We're not entirely, again, sure where this decision has uh, been made and if it even has has been a government decision yet. Um, So I I can't say, though... um, we would love to see the government take uh, more compassionate leadership um, for all Australians and show that, that LGBTI people are an important part of this, this country um, and that, that including uh, them and sorry, us in, in those counts um, matters and directing services appropriately makes our community better for every, for every Australian. 
So what are some of the questions that Equality Australia and other groups would like to see the census include? There is, uh, again, a big discussion about this. Um, we'd love to see a question about sexual orientation in the census. We'd also love to see questions that reflect the fact that there are more than two genders and to make sure that we can capture intersex data as well. We'd love the, the government um, and the ABS to consult with relevant LGBTI organisations and health bodies to make sure that those questions are appropriate and accurately capture the data we need to, to direct money to services. I'm glad you mentioned the intersex community because these exclusions must be incredibly frustrating for the intersex community as an emerging community that really relies on, you know, the the collection of data to justify and explain the need for the funding of infrastructure and services for the intersex community. Absolutely, and I know that the uh, Intersex Human Rights Australia um, have, have done quite a lot of work around the census and have been talking about the need for questions on, on intersex people and making sure that those questions capture the diversity of, of, of that community as well. And again, we, we, we just want the government to work with organisations who have the knowledge and expertise of these communities so we can work better as a sector to make sure that funding is directed appropriately for healthcare and for social services. Does the fact that this trial is happening in in Wagga Wagga, um, which is like a, a you know fairly small community, uh, perhaps more homogeneous in other parts of the country, is that an impediment to the campaign for the inclusion of of data about the LGBTIQ community? Will will um, the government use Wagga Wagga as a justification for uh, a lack of responsiveness? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not entirely sure. I definitely know that it's not going to change our position on this, which is, you know, we need to count all Australians. Um, and I, I assume the government has picked Wagga Wagga for a reason and, and demographic reasons or maybe practical reasons about surveying people. I'm not entirely sure. But, but that doesn't change our position on this. And hopefully, you know, whatever data comes out of that isn't used to justify further exclusion of people. Uh, in the census because the census, you know, it's not just a population count. It has to reflect all of our country um, and the information collected underpins funding and planning for essential life-changing programs and we really need that data to be used to help all Australians and specifically LGBTI Australians um, and better understanding what our community looks like across all of Australia and obviously not just in Wagga Wagga. So when will the questions for the 2021 uh, census be finalised? We are not sure. Again, um, we would love to uh, we'll hear some more from, from the government and the ABS about this. We assume, obviously, that stuff will come after this test run. We don't know whether or not you know these questions are going to be left out just because they're not in this test run, so we're hopeful that the community pressure in talking to, to the right people um, can get these questions included because we don't want to wait another, you know, another five years um, because it takes data over time to be to be the most useful so we're going to keep talking about it we're going to keep working with with lots of organizations the health bodies and, and lgbti rights organizations across the country have been doing work on this for years to make sure that we can get the best and most accurate data we can from our census so who do you go to in the government to talk about these concerns uh, i imagine there's a lot of buck passing happening sounds like it yes uh there is a minister in charge um of uh, who who's kind of has delegation to the ABS. Who's that? Um, but, uh, at the moment, it's Michael Suko. Um, right. So, you know, uh, we One are... One of the Dutton supporters. 
Yeah, there's um again though we're not sure how uh, where this decision has come from whether it's the ABS or, or, or whether it's the minister. So we uh, along with lots of other organisations trying to work out where this decision has been made, if a decision has been made, where those recommendations have come from, and 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 you know what the census is going to look like. It's 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 very hard at the moment to kind of work out who who are, who are best placed to kind of pressure because of the fact that that these reports sort of came unexpectedly um, last last Saturday. So we're trying to gain as much clarification as we, as we can. So Michael Sukar is a Victorian federal MP. What's his office saying? Uh, are they saying anything? And is Equality Australia trying to meet with him? We are currently not because we have been following the lead of, of other organisations who have been working on this longer than us. Um, at the moment, the best thing that, that we can do to, to add value to this campaign is to, to mobilise public support, which is what uh, we've been doing, building and ensuring that, that our supporters are aware of this um, and making sure that they are you know, sort of finding our petition and getting involved. We, we've left the, the contacting of the ministers to groups that have been working on this for, for a long time. We will get that information from them when we get it. Sure. Um, so, so tell us some. Tell us about the organisations who are also involved in the campaign. The LGBTI Health Alliance um, have been doing work on this for a number of years. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Intersex uh, Human Rights Australia have been doing work. They released a joint statement about this uh, yesterday. But a few, in, back in August, a, a massive coalition of groups, um, including ourselves, but, but a bunch of different organisations like UNSW, the Cancer Council, Black Dog, Are You OK, VCOS, QCOS, those kind of organisations, gave a statement kind of to talking about the need for uh, inclusion of LGBTI data in the census and what that means for health and wellbeing policies to address the uh, wellbeing um, disparities that LGBTI Australians face compared to the, the rest of the Australian population. As far as you know, has Michael Sukar met with any of these groups? About this Again, issue, I, as far as I know, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine that people will be trying to to get in touch to work out, you know, where this decision has been made. Like I said, it was a quite unexpected announcement, sort of over the weekend in the media, and so we've been just trying to to make sure that we have the right information. We don't want to sort of be passing blame onto onto people incorrectly. We really just want to be able to work with the relevant. Um, the relevant ministers, the relevant departments, um, to make sure that we can get this data in and captured in the census. Of course, you're new to Equality Australia. You're their community engagement officer. Tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I am new. I started a few weeks ago. So it's been a bit of a bit of a hectic time. I was previously Australia's youth representative to the United Nations. A few years ago, I conducted Australia's largest ever consultation of young Australians. Um, I went to the around 600 schools or something and met um, 52,000 people under the age of 25 asking them what it is they uh, wish the government knew and considered about themselves when when making policy. But otherwise, I I work in campaign messaging and and strategy, so I'm super glad to be uh, at Equality Australia. It's a really exciting organisation. I think the work is is fantastic and, you know, really close to my heart, so it's great to, to be here. So tell us about some of the other campaigns you might be working on. Yeah, um, so the biggest one that we're sort of working on at the moment, which which is taking up probably most of our sort of energy at the moment, is the religious discrimination bill that the, the draft has come out um, and submissions have just closed for um, that the government have put up, working on trying to to make that bill more palatable and ensure that it's a balanced bill that works for all Australians rather than 
than its current form, which is um, quite it's quite legally complicated. But it's a really important uh, bill for people to know about because we really just don't think people are aware of the kind of impacts that it's going to have on possibly millions of Australians. Of course, the Prime Minister uh, put his foot in it again this week when it came to gender identity, saying that the gender identity or, or really the trans community was struggling with the politics of and pressures of, of gender identity. What's your response to that? I mean, it's a very upsetting statement from the Prime Minister. Um, you know, this is not a, a game. I think the, the phrase that he used was identity politics, and it's just really... In the conversation, sorry, in the context of the conversation that was being had with um, with with trans children talking about, you know, wanting to meet with the prime minister to to talk about the high suicide rates of trans people is just really disappointing and upsetting. Obviously, this is not about uh, you know air quote quote unquote identity politics. It's about people. Um, it's about ensuring that all people in Australia feel safe. Um, supported and celebrated and when our leaders say things like this we think it's quite damaging for, for so many people particularly young people who are following that conversation and, and, and following young trans leaders in the community so that was really upsetting to hear this week but again it just kind of makes our resolve a bit stronger as we work on things like the religious discrimination bill and the census and making sure that LGBTI people are celebrated and, and supported in their communities across Australia. Paige Burton, keep up the great work. Good luck on the job. And uh, thanks so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks so much. Cheers. In Your Face would like to thank Thornhubber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhubber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhubber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.